Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talk with Rand Fishkin, co-founder and CEO of SparkToro. This episode was a little bit different since Rand was on the podcast two years ago, so we're picking the story where we left off, and specifically focusing in on what's changed since the last episode. Enjoy. All right, Rand, welcome back to Founder Chats. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, Brian? I'm fantastic. For our chat today, usually when we're talking to people, we walk through their entrepreneurial journey and we talk about, you know, where it started and and, and how they sort of walk through each step of, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and, and sort of all the trials and tribulations. But for you, you've been on the podcast before. And my first thought was that you were on the podcast like a long time ago. And then I looked it up and it, actually you were on the podcast as recently as 2019. And then I thought about the last two years and I'm like, wait, that, that actually, <laughs> actually is like kind of like a long time ago. <laughs> so for this one, I, I don't want to, you know, tell people if they want to hear that story, go back and listen to the first episode, but kind of go back and listen to the first episode. <laughs> what I thought would be cool today, if you're up for it, is to maybe go back and say, hey, well, what's changed since then? The world's changed a lot, obviously. Maybe I can just run by some of the things that you talked about in the first episode and some of the other things that we've seen you talk about. And maybe you can give me the like, you know, the, the 2021 revised version. How does that sound? Sounds great. Cool. Well, yeah. So the, the first thing I was sort of thinking about was like, you started in the consulting space. And one of the things that you said, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth, but please correct me if I'm wrong, but the consulting relationships kind of tend to have this, you know, there's, you said, to leave your words, like a little bit of a fakeness about them. One thing that I was considering, I think it's becoming increasingly popular to basically turn support teams and success teams outward to doing, you know, kind of outbound. It's not not really sales and it's not quite consulting, but I think a lot of SaaS products are doing more work and kind of hunting their customers down in a bigger way. Like, do you still feel the same way about that kind of fake consulting relationship? And do you have any concern that that's something that spills over into the world of customer success? Let's see. So I'm guessing the word I used, because this is how I always think of it in my own mind, was transaction. So it's not that you know the relationship isn't fake. It's a, it's a real relationship. It can be great and positive. I know lots of consultants who have wonderful relationships with their clients and vice versa. We are a client of many consultancies. We've used you know Elevate and Conversion Rate Experts and a number of individual consultants for all sorts of things. I love using consultants and agencies for everything I possibly can. I don't understand why other companies don't. But, and, and I think, you know, obviously the relationships that I have with them are great. What I don't like is when I am the consultant, the transactional nature of the relationship that I feel emotionally with my clients and potential clients, right? Like I'm always kind of trying to please them because I have to, because it's part of my business. And for some reason, especially in my 20s, when I started out as a consultant, I was very poor at navigating those relationships. Would I be okay at it now? Maybe. As to your question about customer success teams, I agree with you that many, many large SaaS companies, even mid-sized SaaS companies, um, software businesses, technically probably have a very large services arm. And they sort of try and hide it in their numbers because some investors are still wary of services revenue, but they shouldn't be. That That's just a dumb bias on the part of investors. I think smart software companies recognize that customer lifetime value and margins and stickiness of those relationships can be great. Obviously, Salesforce has a consulting-like relationship with many of their clients, the big ones and the small ones. HubSpot has the same thing. You know, If you look at the whatever top 50 SaaS companies by public market share or public market size, they almost to a company, I think, have a consulting-like relationship and a consulting-like team in customer success or onboarding or customer service, those kinds of things. And that's, that's fine. Cool. So the, the transactional nature isn't really like a, not like a universal truth. It's more like you were saying more like, this is something you don't particularly like, or at least you didn't yeah. at that point in time. Exactly. Exactly. I, I still don't like it, right? I still would much prefer to have as much of a disconnected from financial transactional relationship as possible with the people that I know. And eh, that's just that's just how I am. I'm weird. Does it feel different for you? So for example, if you have a, a customer that's subscribing to software, does that 
that does that feel okay for you or does it is it any yeah, time that you're right because they can they can quit any time and i i won't even know <laughs> right? like if someone's a, you know someone comes up to me at, a, at an event and they're like oh yeah we you know whatever back in my consulting day or back in my Moz days right people would come up and be like oh we're a client of Moz great wonderful that's terrific and if they cancel their membership it's fine too right it doesn't it's not a it's not the same thing as oh hey we're a client of yours personally interesting I see there's like a little bit of uh, indirection there there's <laughs> some misdirection. Yeah, right. It's sort of like, oh, hey, you work at Hertz. I once rented a car from Hertz. Oh, cool. As opposed <laughs> to, you, you know, like, oh, you're a contractor for me, right? You you consult with me. We get on the phone for a monthly call. You present me with how you're doing for us. That That's a very different kind of relationship. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe why I went down the success road is I, I feel like we're almost walking ourselves into that sort of relationship where we are proactively reaching out to customers. We are looking at their account. We're trying to, at least on like the bare metric side, we're trying to help them figure out like, well, you know, what could you be doing better? Or if there's something weird going on, or like, we've just, we've seen a lot more bare metrics dashboards than everybody else. So I wonder if we're, if we're walking ourselves into that sort of situation where it's like, oh, hey, well, you know, we see them cancel and we're like, oh man, we sent them, I don't know, it's almost kind of funny. It's like, we sent them so many great tips and tricks and, yeah. you know, and, and they received them well. Yeah, it feels much more personal. Right. And maybe that's just a piece of psychology that we're going to need to get better at managing over time. Yeah, I think it's everyone's choice. This is the beautiful thing about being a founder and creating a business of your own is that you get to decide which types of problems you want to take on and which types of problems you don't want to take on. And one of the problems that I don't want to take on is changing my psychology to be more robustly immunized against the transactional nature of consulting relationships. Like I just, I don't care to work, uh, to work on that problem. I'd rather just work around it. And I think this is a beautiful thing that a lot of founders should think about is here's a problem I don't want to work on. How do I work around it? How do I just avoid that problem altogether by designing a business that doesn't need to get good at that problem? Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's almost to a point that you mentioned before of like around how there are all these market forces. For example, you mentioned with VCs are sort of like anti-services revenue. So companies like hide that and work around it. But that you sort of have walked down a pretty long road to get to the point where you care what the VCs think. And you know, you've walked yourself into that situation. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, which I I mean I obviously think, and you probably know from our, our previous conversation, right? I think that's almost universally a mistake. Taking on venture capital, never mind caring what your VCs think once you have, I think both of those are mistakes. Interesting. I want to talk more about that too. There's something else on my list here that I made a note of when I was listening to the last episode. And it feels to me, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like me, to me like you have like a system for your your psychology. Like it feels like you you have something figured out there, even to like you, what you're saying of, you know, you're you're not you don't have this overt concern around like, well, you know, all the cool companies are doing this, so I need to change myself. And you're like, well, this is me and this is who I am. It's like a very almost a very zen and mindful thing. Do you feel the same way about yourself? Do you feel like you have a system of psychology that's like that's working for you? It's certainly getting better. I don't think I have it all worked out by any means, but I think one of the things that comes with age and some emotional maturity and some bad experiences, right, is that you become wiser about who you are and what you love to do and what you hate to do and what brings you energy in your day and what uh, saps that energy from you and, and makes you feel like crap. And those are things that I am lucky enough to be very mindful of, right? And what one of the things that I, for example, know about myself is that I have no interest in being a moonshot, low probability chance of getting to, you know, whatever, 100 million ARR with a SaaS business. I don't give up. F about that. Like just, <laughs> I just don't, could, could not care less, right? So actually, Brian, that's probably, that's probably not even the right way to say it. I think what I, what I recognize from my history and from sort of being inside the venture environment, right, with my previous company and then 
kind of waking up to what's going on is venture is an asset class that is intentionally designed to take advantage of the tax breaks that are given to capital gains over income, right? And so the venture capital industry, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, right, like eight out of 10 venture firms don't beat the market, don't beat the public stock market in returns, two out of 10. And the only way they're able to do that is is through capital gains tax rate, of course, right? So you are essentially getting an asset class that funds, you know, a, a few hundred thousand companies a year with the goal of having a few dozen of those hundred thousand do extraordinarily well. And the rest have a somewhere between mediocre and truly dismal journey. And so what what that gets is essentially a world like the world that we live in, where, you know, in the broader economy, a few winners and a, a huge mass of losers. So lots of income inequality, lots of wealth inequity, lots of jealousy and strife and anger and frustration and sadness and you know the wreckage of tons of people's sort of careers and financial lives because they you know they could have been making more money at a bigger company but they were sort of seduced to a startup where hopefully their options were going to make them rich and of course 99% of the time that doesn't happen sometimes even when it does happen if they didn't execute them right or didn't negotiate right or whatever so that's an ugly world i just don't I don't want to be part of it. I don't understand the... That's not true. I understand the allure. I understand how they sell it. And yeah, I think the, you know, the beautiful part about getting older is that you can recognize systems that you don't want to be part of and then sort of walk away. It sounds so simple and logical when you put it that way. <laughs> it, is not, it is not simple. There's no, nothing about that is simple. But is Barometrics, are you guys uh, venture-backed? We are owned by a private equity firm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, my old company, Moz, was was just bought by a private equity firm maybe three months ago, four months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which private equity has its own challenges, but there's at least not... I mean, there's the expectation, right, that that you know, they will pay you market rates <laughs> and, and that your odds of lasting are much, much higher than a venture-backed business. There is a lot of similarity to the venture world, but you're right. There are some differences. But we, I, I had the same conversation with our, you know, w- with one of the partners at the the private equity firm, and they're sort of like, well, they were like, well, we want to be in the 95th percentile of private equity. And it's like, okay, well, what do we need to do to do that? And they said, just don't lose any money. <laughs> and you know, of course, I'm, I'm laughing and you know, hitting them with my elbow. I'm like, yeah, sure. And they're like, no, seriously, I think. Private equity and VC are are lumped into sort of the same category. That's an eye opener to a lot of people. That yeah, to to be like amongst the best in the world, you just have to like if you return anything, if you give people their money back, you're like instantly you know your god tier, your S tier financing vehicle. Yeah, I mean, a venture is is certainly not like that, right? Because so many of the companies go bust. I think you know basically, you know, Moz for example, right? I think I'm not allowed to disclose what the sale price was or whatever, but I, I, you know, I can give you a ballpark that our in our early investors, right in the first round, probably made somewhere between five and seven times their money on the Moz deal. But the problem was they they initially funded us in 2007, and so over what 14 years, the rate of return just isn't good enough. You know, they probably they probably barely broke even or lost money in, as compared to if they just put it in the S and P five hundred. But yeah, it's actually so interesting to consider too. It's, it's like, well, even I'm thinking now, like me, a doofus. I'm like, but it could have been better. <laughs> like you're, you're literally sitting here being like, no, oh, yeah. like I'm I'm literally giving you the facts of <laughs> of what's happened, and you know, well, I, it, basically what I'm saying is, you know, Ma is a company that returned whatever. Somewhere around five to seven x the money that was put into it to its early investors is not even a what a venture capitalist would consider a base hit, right? It's a that sucked. Let's not do that again. What we need, and in fact, what you know, what's what's realistically going to happen is if you're a venture firm, you should do that many, many, many times again, and try and find the one that either is going to do five to seven x in four years or three years. Or the one that's going to do 
50x in 14 years. It's interesting. And it's strange to consider too, because I feel sort of a similar pressure from the operator side, because the way that I think about like what we're doing internally, it's like, well, we could do 10 projects, you know, in quarter four, we could have, we could have 10 goals and maybe we get one of them and that would be really awesome. Like, or we could set five goals and then, you know, you know, we could kind of narrow our scope or we could just like focus on one thing and like, we could really like really knock that one thing out of the park. And it's interesting to consider like from a VC perspective, since you theoretically have less control, well, yeah, then it makes sense to say like, well, let's, you know, let's throw 10 things out there, <laughs> whatever the case is, you know, it just playing the numbers, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if it's actually a good idea or not, but people are doing it and it seems like they're making money despite <laughs> everything we just said. Well, so this, I think this is the challenge, right? The stories that get told and the ones that get amplified and covered in the press and featured on TechMeme and talked about in the Wall Street Journal and all that are the one in 1,000, one in 100 companies that do extraordinarily well with the asset classes, right? There is no coverage. I've, I've almost never seen it unless there's a huge scandal. I've almost never seen coverage of, oh, here's an analysis of this venture fund and the 80 companies they invested in over the last three years that have all gone bust. And we're going to tell the sad stories of the 6,000 employees who worked at those 80 companies and how much money they lost, how that impacted their families and friends. No, no. But will we talk about how Travis Kalanick bought, I don't know, whatever, some pop star's old mansion? Heck yeah. That's super going to be in the press, right? <laughs> the ability of a of an individual in the current technology and you know founder media ecosystem to be able to rationally recognize the odds that they're up against is next to impossible. I just don't think it is reasonable to ask a founder to consider the odds because every founder of course thinks that they're the outlier. Right? Like to go into this world and to go and try and raise venture money, you have to think that you are literally one in a thousand, one in a million. And that's what you have to be. But, but I, don't, I don't think what you don't recognize is not only do you have to be one in a million in the general population, you then have to be one in a thousand among the one in a millions that have been selected for taking venture and being able to raise and hopefully grow a company. And there's just not recognition of that the failure rate you know, so many people joke about like, oh, well, the worst business you could be in is like the restaurant business, right? Is the, the whatever, the five-year, 10-year survival rate of restaurants. The 10-year survival rate of restaurants in the United States is like three times better than a venture-backed business. <laughs> if you start up a sandwich shop on the corner, you are far more likely 10 years from now to still be in operation and successfully serving your customers and employing your team than if you start a venture-backed company. Yeah, that's pretty wild. It's very weird. Yeah, it goes to show that like, sandwiches are, are a pretty durable, pretty durable product. Like, they're pretty good. We've been, we've been working on them for a while. And um, I think the market agrees that sandwiches are, are pretty delicious. I mean, I need one every now and again. So there you yeah, go. there you go. You mentioned that a lot of what you've gotten to is you've kind of come to this thought process through your experience and through, you know, thinking about it and with, you know, some time and some wisdom. I was going to ask, like, what do you say to entrepreneurs that are just getting started or thinking about it? Or, you know, maybe your answer to me is going to be, well, you can't really, like, you can't teach this stuff. <laughs> like, either somebody's going to, you know, think this way or they're not going to think this way. I hope that's not true, right? I hope that. I hope that there's a mindset of openness to alternatives. And, and I think there's starting to be some cognition around the iniquities and the challenge and the um, problems, systemic problems of the venture industry and, and more broadly, sort of the tech startup industry. I feel like we're seeing that. And I feel like my job, right, my obligation is is not to say, don't start a company. It's to say, my God, founding a company is amazing. You get to build this thing. It's, it's creative and artistic, and it also can you know, be life-changing for you and for your team if, if you do well. My prerogative is just to tell the story of 
alternative ways to fund and build your business. And the crazy, the, the thing that's crazy to me is you do not have to raise venture capital or go after these high risk, low reward in, you know, asset classes. You can, I don't want to say very easily, but just as easily as you can raise venture capital, which is quite difficult, you can just as easily look at alternative funding methods. And those include, you know, private investors with a unique structure, like what we did at SparkToro. And, and obviously we open sourced our docs so that other people could do it. There's a bunch of alternative funds that are out there now that are kind of funding the zebras over unicorns model, right? This idea of companies that are designed to grow at whatever pace they reasonably can rather than, you know, rocket ship or die trying. There are crowdfunding alternatives. There's revenue loan alternatives. It's never been cheaper to self-fund a company. And so I, I think that those alternatives just present a path of lots of smaller businesses with growth rates that are survivable and scalable with long-term survival odds that look more like a normal small business and with outcomes that can be still financially transformative, but financially transformative for a larger number of people and spread across those, right? So when you think about, you know, hey, here's this market sector, some venture business is going to win whatever, 80% of the market and two founders are going to get super rich and everybody else, not so much. Or, hey, 50 businesses, 100 businesses, 10,000 businesses are going to start in this sector. They will combine for you know, maybe 80% of the market overall, and, and that wealth will be spread out. And the growth rates will be smaller, and the concentration of you know, financial returns will be smaller. But that's okay. That's, I think that's actually a beautiful thing. So it's a, it's a philosophical thing, right? Do you want to participate in an ecosystem where you have a very small chance of being the big winner? Or do you want to participate in an ecosystem where you have a much greater chance of being smaller, but still successful ongoing operation? Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just trying to put myself back into where I was mentally when I was starting my first business. And I think I was still probably it's just still too dumb to understand that like, you know, a greater chance at, you know, a slightly worse outcome financially is better overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately the last, you know, 20, 30 years of American economics and, and just American culture in particular, you know, this might be true in Canada and Europe to a lesser extent, but it has very much I think ingrained in all of us this idea that there's a few winners and tons of losers. This is how you get the the income and wealth inequality of the US overall and this sort of idea of like elites against everyone else and and all that sort of stuff and and obviously you know we are now at a wealth inequality level that I think technically rivals or or even beats the the 1920s which is historically very dangerous, right? That's usually when lots of terrible things happen, but Hey man, I mean, I, <laughs> I I have a lot of empathy for folks who feel like they have to be the one winner among a thousand losers, right? I, hey, I have to. It's become a millionaire or die trying, right? Because I just can't, I can't survive in this economy on anything else, and I get it. Like it's painful and and shitty the way our culture reinforces that idea, right? Sort of lottery winner culture, but. Eh. I think maybe, and, and maybe I'm, I'm sort of going down the wrong path here because I'm sort of saying like, well, the solution to this problem is the the new entrance to you know people who are are younger or starting their first business. It's, you know, the the kind of onus is on them to realize that they have a choice other than going the VC route. But you know, they're also the least educated and, you know, and the less least experienced. So maybe the actual vector for change here is like before we used to celebrate, you know, the the serial entrepreneur of somebody who would like raise money and then, you know, <laughs> kind of like be on the VC treadmill, like forever across multiple companies. Like maybe that's the path to like better visibility of like, in your case, like you're like, I tried it once and I, you know, that wasn't the flavor for me. So I'm going to do something else. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to 
just present as a role model for anybody else to say like, hey, and you can even, you can even skip step, step one if you want. Yeah, I think my hope is sort of just to set an example of how that can be done and then to hopefully amplify that journey with the same zeal that uh, venture-backed founders and, and the media that covers venture-backed companies does. That's a tall order, but yeah, my, my, you know, my hope is that like SparkToro does well over the next few years, continues to do well, and that you know, at some point there's a, a follow-up to my book, The Lost and Founder, the one we talked about in, in 2019, and maybe that helps get it on a few people's radars. It's a slog, man, right? You know, you don't have a vested interest from tens of thousands of, you know, very, very wealthy elite folks to amplify those kinds of stories. Whereas every venture capitalist and every firm and all the LPs that put money into venture, they all have a lot of interest in seeing that media ecosystem continue to amplify and support that one narrative that this is the way. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I think that we, in addition to all the other kind of social media things that happen to our brains as well, I think like the success against all odds and, you know, or this, you know, uh, fantastic success story is something yeah. that's very, very attractive. Like you were saying of like, you know, this founder bought this beach house or this, you know, sports car <laughs> or whatever, like for yeah. whatever reason, to your point, that's news. And it's not like, and I guess I get it too. Cause my, in my head, I'm thinking like, well, what's the other headline? bootstrap company makes, Keeps you know, doing well year after yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, you know, reliably and dependably provide service to customers who appreciate them. It's just like, <laughs> yep. you know, it doesn't have the same zing yep. to it. Shockingly, happy employees aren't harassed and burned out. <laughs> hmm, weird. <Right. laughs> Not really a story, but should be a story, right? Yeah, Deserves yeah. to be a story. Yeah. Bootstrap company decides to operate at 50% for two weeks to protect employees from burnout. What a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, right? Like we at SparkToro, we have this idea. There's only three of us, but we have this idea of like chill work, right? So, hey, I am in a deep work productivity zone, you know, today. And I have two or three hours where I'm cranking through stuff and getting stuff done. And that's great. And it feels wonderful. And then I feel kind of tired at the end of it. And technically, there's four or five more tasks on my plate. But I am going to go inside and play some video games and go for a walk and make dinner because I'm just not feeling it. And that is awesome. That is not something to be maligned and laughed at and scoffed at, which hustle culture will absolutely do. That is, in my opinion, that's two things. One, it is respectful of the human being, which is a wonderful thing. And two, when I do that work and I'm in a mentally better, less tired place, the quality of the work and the outcome of that work will be better. And the company will actually do better because of it. And so I think that's a really hard mental model to work yourself around because we have been sort of, again, media trained, right? And culturally imbued with this idea that hustling and working hard and working through pain and tiredness and cranking out that extra few hours of effort, even though we put in a full day, that that is what is to be lauded and aimed for. But it's not. That's a totally false narrative that we've been fed, right? This idea that <laughs> after whatever, you know, seven or eight hours of work, the next three hours are somehow going to be equally productive. That's, that's just a whole bunch of baloney. I think that I've heard some people make the argument of like, well, if you're starting a business and you're taking all this risk and, you know, it's really hard and challenging, like, well, why are you doing all of that to just work the same hours that you would work at, you know, an investment bank or, you know, something like, like, what, what is the point? What is the benefit to this additional struggle and this additional risk that you're taking, if not to set your own hours? Isn't that what we were pitched? <laughs> like, start a business and you can set your own hours and be your own boss. Part of it, sure, is being able to accomplish something that you want to see exist in the world, right? So I want this 
software, you know, that, that whatever helps people with, with market research and audience research. Like I want that to exist. It didn't exist before. There was no solution like this. I want SparkToro to exist. I'm going to work very hard, long hours to see that happen. And the weird reality that's, I think, been hammered home to me is that's a false, it's a false choice that long hours and difficult work is something that you can work around if you are intelligent and thoughtful about how you design and build your business and how you design and build your workday and how you structure the company that you're building. And it is okay. Not only okay, it is more ideal if you structure and build a business that requires very little or as little as possible hours. I'll give you an example, right, Brian? So I was, I think yesterday, maybe Sunday, we passed a thousand paid subscribers to SparkToro, which is awesome. Like just lovely. I'm super excited about that. You know, it's not like it was with Moz where we like celebrated and put up a blog post and had a little party, but it's fun. It's cool. Like it's it's great to pass a milestone like that. And also yesterday I was realizing like, oh man, I think we got one support request all day. And it was just like a very easy email to answer. And I had this recognition like, oh my God, we have somehow built a business where conceivably we all three of us could do no work, have a thousand subscribers. And as long as one of us sort of replied to one email, that'd be fine. (laughs) Right? Because the business in a lot of ways runs itself, right? The code that Casey built, like it does this thing, you know, he had, I don't remember, like a parent teacher meeting yesterday and he had to pick up his girls from school and he was like, I got to do laundry. <laughs> so, you know, Casey's doing stuff as his partner, his wife works full time. So great. Fantastic. You know, I went for my two walks and played my video games and I, yeah, I got a bunch of my work done and, and missed out on a little bit of it and that's okay. Catch up today. Yeah. That's really powerful. So if we have somebody that's in that that mindset of like, okay, like, I don't know if, if we want to start with a case that's like full on like hustle culture. Probably the the average person working within a within a startup is more on the end of I have way too much on my plate, and the way for me to get through to the other side is to spend more time and to kind of power through. What are the steps that you would walk somebody through to say, okay, you're wherever you are on the spectrum. And I want to kind of bring you over into this, like this calmer, more thoughtful place. Like, what, what process would you, would you talk them through to get there? Yeah, I think a huge part of it is the design of the business itself, right? So you, it is product design and it's customer relationship design and it's design of your marketing and design of your financial structure and design of your incentives and of your team and you know when i look back on my time at moz i would say there were many many weeks where i was working 50 60 plus hours very few where i ever did like 80 plus but but plenty of 50 60 plus and i am going to guess that probably a full 100 hours each month were useless, meaning that technically I was working, right? I was answering emails and, and writing things and creating things and, you know, sitting in on meetings and giving feedback to people, blah, 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 blah. And 50% of it or more was pointless. It did not add value to customers. It did not make the product better. It didn't make the business more efficient. I was hustling to hustle. I was working hard in order to work hard. <laughs> not to have an outcome or or an achievement. And when I look at a lot of people's, you know, schedules and talk to them about what they're doing, it is it's meetings, it is, you know, customer engagement or customer research or projects that are essentially high time consumption, lots of scheduling and then like in person or, you know, over Zoom or that kind of thing that don't need to exist. Right? That could be end around it in other ways. So as an example, many, many companies have a lot of structure around, hey, in order to validate that this next feature is the next feature that we should be building, we are going to jump through dozens of weeks of work spread across multiple team members, right? There's going to be like like these three people, they're going to do a bunch of customer interviews, and then we're going to run this survey, and then we're going to 
Alternatively, we could just build it. <laughs> right? We could just have someone who's like, yes, build that. No, don't build this. And by making that call, you could literally save, you know, 30 plus weeks of work across multiple people. That's pretty cool. That's a good thing to do, right? And then you you just make those decisions based on the best information that you've got and you have a willingness to be wrong sometimes. And Perhaps you choose to build the things that you think are the best combination of low effort to build and high impact to build. And maybe you lean a little bit more in the low effort one. That is a great way to to make those decisions. Maybe you design a customer service program that is exclusively through email. So you don't have chat on your website and there's no phone number and you're very responsive over email, but no other channels. And so everything comes via email. Oh, look at that. That one channel makes, makes things a lot easier. You decide not to set up Slack. Now you have nothing to check, right? There's nothing that's always on that could all, you know, be feeding you constant conversation. Oh, look at that. That really, that really reduces communication to just the most important, thoughtful things that people have to structure into an email. This is what we do at SparkToro, <laughs> right? So th- there's a lot of ways to design a business that are the highest outcome to lowest amount of work ratio. It seems like there's there's sort of a hierarchy here. So if somebody is somebody's in the the non-reformed state of being super busy, tons of hours and you know, really hitting that burnout spot, it sounds like you could really start at the bottom and say, okay, well, first of all, what are the things that you're doing that are actually like just not useful? <laughs> like, you know, like do you, did you need to send that email? Do you need to, you know, whatever, you know, d- does this, uh, does this have to be a meeting? Whatever those, those sorts of very tactical things, or maybe you step up a, a, a rung in the hierarchy and say, okay, well, what are the, what are these projects that you're going down? Like which of these just actually are not going to take you to the end that you need to go to. And then you can kind of step up from there and say like, well, okay, now that we, you know, we kind of have a fixed set of projects that, you know, we think that, we have a reason to believe that they're going to be successful or going to be good for the company. Well, what's the way that we can go about that? It's almost like, it's interesting because it's kind of, I think you've sort of hit on this thing over and over again, but it's just like, hey, like, well, what's like the easy way to do this? Like, and what's like the, what's the kind way to do this? Like, you know, like treat yourself like you're somebody that you love type situation of like, would you ever tell, we, I think we people generally have a pretty like tough set of standards for themselves. But like, if you imagine like, saying your self-talk to somebody else that you loved, you would never do that. So it's almost like the, the corporate, <laughs> corporate version of that. That's exactly right. I think, unfortunately, we are used to corporate environments that abuse team members and, and each other and ourselves. And we're used to a feeling that we do not deserve success, that we don't deserve good outcomes unless we are suffering and struggling. And that's not true either. You know, it's really weird to imagine a world in which working six hours or five hours in a day and doing, you know, good work is rewarded with high pay and with, you know, good health care and solid benefits. And then the rest of your day is enjoying your life. And that does not that does not compute for most Americans. But you have the option. It's it's your choice, especially founders, right? I like I you know, I I don't wanna suggest that, you know, if you're currently whatever, you know, in maintenance work or in or in the hospitality field or those kinds of things, right, that that you have the option to be like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna tell the hotel that I'm going only working six hours today and then I'm going home. No, you you don't have that option. But founders you have this choice. You get to make this decision and you can choose to recruit and hire people who are very high efficiency, but low number of hours. You can choose to build a business that is structured this way. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't start from the bottom, right? I wouldn't start with, oh, okay, I have a hundred people on my team and they're, they're all doing all these busy things. And like, what can I take off this one person's plate? I would start at the top at the very top strategically, what are the initiatives that we actually need to get done? What is everything that could be removed from that? What is the minimum amount of communication 
that could happen around it? How do we reduce the number of communication channels and the number of messages that people are getting? How do we make sure that people have lots of deep work-focused time to get into the zone and then get what they need to get accomplished, and they have very few distractions on top of that? How do we make sure there's very little randomization, all that? Yeah, it's so interesting. Just reflecting myself, I've gotten the feedback many times of like, in probably not so many words, but just like, hey, just chill. (laughs) You know, (laughs) take some time. Do less better. Yeah. Or even just do less. I mean, I've gotten that yeah. that direct, you know, setting goals for the quarter and and those sorts of things. I, I constantly get the feedback of like, hey, we'll just do, maybe just try to do do fewer things. And I've always been like, yeah, but, you know, more stuff is better. So like, <laughs> like why would I like do that, man? Um, I like looking at, I don't know if you've read much about the world's oldest companies, but, you know, there's a a few hundred companies that have been around multiple hundreds of years. And almost all of them are in a few locations in the world. I think uh, a lot are in Japan. And then there's a a few in Italy and and a few in some other countries like that. And they are almost exclusively, I think they are maybe exclusively, singularly focused. They just do one thing, right? There's an onsen in Japan that's been around for 700 years. They do exactly what they did 700 years ago, which is run a very nice hotel with a beautiful natural hot spring bath. It hasn't changed. Sure. You know, it's yeah. obviously it's been updated and the rooms have Wi-Fi and you know modern toilets and all that kind of stuff, right? And and they continue making those kinds of upgrades, but the unique thing that has not happened is they have not tried, they have not aimed for growth at all costs. They have aimed for surviving for a very long time with a healthy profit margin. And that is something that in the United States worked very, very well and was the goal of almost every company until the 1970s when a bunch of wealthy individuals lobbied the federal government to get capital gains taxed at a much lower rate, right? And so once capital gains was 15% and ordinary income was 40%, everybody went, wait, I don't want to make money. I want to grow and then sell things. I think most entrepreneurs have very little concept of how much tax incentives they're like, well, I don't get into business for tax incentives. I don't give a crap about whether my taxes are this or that, but you do not understand how that impacts macroeconomics. And it really, really does. That's why venture works the way it does. That's why private equity works the way it does. That's why Wall Street works the way it does, right? Is all capital gains over ordinary income. And if you are willing to kick that to the curb personally, so SparkToro, we are taxed ordinary income. We're an LLC. Our investors get dividends that are part of their regular income and they get taxed at that rate, which, you know, they might say, oh man, I'm losing whatever, 20%, 25% of my gains from SparkToro. And my response is, yeah, but all the benefits outweigh that. Right. Um, right. You're like, yeah, but. <laughs> Sorry. I guess. Yeah, but we don't have we don't have to grow at all costs, right? Our our focus doesn't have to be exclusively growth. It can be surviving for a very long time. Look, I mean, SparkToro is trying to grow. We have a you know five percent monthly growth target. I just looked in you know in our uh, account and oh well, we hit it on the twenty first today. Actually, one hundred one percent of the goal. So like, you can do this. I'm not saying it's that growth is is not something to aim for, but it can be balanced with other things. It's just a, you know, it's a totally different mentality of running a business and why to found a business and what you're doing with it. And I think the part that frustrates me so much, Brian, is that it is foreign and unusual. It's a whole system, which I think is kind of to your point at the end there, like you, you've gone through this whole kind of philosophy. And I think that even in kind of my subconscious and probably in other listeners, we're thinking like, okay, well, that's cool. You know, if you're okay, not, you know, growing as fast, you don't want to be a hyper scaling company or whatever, but no, you're growing at, you know, a great benchmark. It's not like a tweak to the current system. It's like, there's a, it's kind of a whole new, a whole new philosophy and you can, you can do all this other stuff and you can also grow it like whatever it's going to wind up being for this month, 6% or 7% or whatever the number is. The goal that I have for the business is, you know, I have this, I have this structure, right? 
where we essentially prioritize things. And I, I think about this in relation to my previous company, where the, the priority was essentially, you know, it went investors, market, customers, team, in that order. The structure of the business was essentially designed to benefit what the investors needed and wanted most of all, and then what the market needed and wanted, and then what our existing customers needed and wanted, and then what the team needed and wanted. And of course, when you make your team the last priority, eh, you know, some things, you, you get the usual sort of tech startup culture. And, and SparkToro is very different. It is existing customers, team, market, investors. And yeah, just, hey, if there's an existing customer and they have a high priority problem, yeah, we'll, we'll bend over backwards, right? But we've also built a business where that happens very infrequently. I looked at my email this morning. I think there was like three customer service inquiries. I replied to one, Casey replied to two. One was like a refund. One was someone needed access to a different account. The third one was a question about how to do a search. I was like, okay, (laughs) that's pretty good for 1,020 customers or whatever, right? Absolutely. Ta-da. Well, Rand, I had um, in my mind that the last question I was going to ask you is sort of like, just because of your positioning, your vast experience with SEO and everything you're doing with SparkToro, I was going to sort of ask a, a more targeted question around like, hey, somebody who's getting started today, like what would your kind of like marketing, you know, and, and research recommendations be? But I think we, we've kind of, we've broadened the conversation out, you know, beyond that a little bit. So, and if you haven't already hit your, your primary thoughts here, if somebody's listening to this, this podcast and they, they want to start a company or they want to become a founder or be a founder again, what are your recommendations on kind of the, the getting started, the first couple of steps that you'd recommend that they, they take? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I think cautiously and thoughtfully considering the aspects of how you want to run your business and then being able to do some experimentation in those fields to make sure that A, it is effective, B, it's relatively efficient, like you can do that work and it is not incredibly draining of your energy and you hate every minute of it and it's not consuming all your time. And then see that it is effectively moving the needle for you know, whatever structure you want to build, right? So if you say, you know, hey, I am getting into whatever consumer product goods, and I'm going to make this product to serve this particular market. And here's, you know, here's who I think needs and wants it. And I'm going to do some experimentation around that to figure that out. I, I like those philosophies, right? I like the MVP sort of approach in the early stages and experimentation. My advice that differs from traditional tech startup world is you don't have to go fast. You don't have to pour hours in to make yourself feel productive. You can get a small amount of work done every day, you know, whatever, in your, in your spare time or while you're working at your day job, or you can go get funding and you can still give yourself permission to not have to work you know, work yourself to the bone and you can be very efficient with dollars. One of the ways that Casey and I were very efficient with dollars that is super weird in the venture-backed world, we kept the team, just the two of us, for the first almost three years of the business, right? So basically, <laughs> that kept our costs incredibly low. We didn't have all that much burn. It was just basically paying ourselves and our health insurance and we got some AWS credits, so we didn't even really start spending on tech costs very much until I think the start of this year. It gave us a lot of time to experiment and like build some stuff and then see how it was going to go. And we kind of did everything ourselves on our time. So yes, would it have been faster if we had built up a team and you know to six or seven people and then like tried to race to get something out? And yeah, maybe we probably could have done it in, I don't know. 12 months instead of, took us almost 20 months, I think, to get our product launched. Not quite, like 19 months. So could we have done that faster? Yeah. Could we have scaled up faster after we got the product out? Eh, Yeah, maybe a little bit. Was that the right path for us? I don't think so. And you can do this too. You can even do it if you raise venture. (laughs) Don't tell them, but you can do it. Don't tell them, right? Don't tell them. Tell them you're going to do the like, oh yeah, we're going to hyper growth. We're going to rocket ship, blah, 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 blah. And then once the round is closed, be like, psych, 
<laughs> right? You, you don't have to. They, they're not going to stop you from doing what you want to do, especially after that early raise. You get to control it. I don't think CEOs realize how much power they have, even in that type of a structure. And so you can take it slow and easy and tell your investors, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure this money lasts. We're going to get to profitability so we never have to raise again. I know you want us to try and grow at all costs and and die trying, but that's not what's going to happen here. And your investors might feel a little misled, but when you have a long-term growing profitable business that maybe eventually hits their goals, they'll forgive you. Yeah, or yeah, that's actually a great point is that the the result is that, I mean, if you are in the bucket of non-home runs, then I was going to say you get kind of discarded. That's that's really poor. poor You get ignored, right? You get ignored and that's great. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of great, right? To have a business that's that's going and that's profitable and you're like, hey, you know, you go to the board meetings and be like, hey, we're doing good. We're we're not growing, you know, 10x quarter over quarter, but we're doing well. Yeah, that's really great. It's it seems like in summary you're kind of have all the traditional startup advice of experiment and get, you know, the domain expertise, but you you're sort of your your additional trick if you can call it a trick is that on top of all those sorts of things is to take your time and, and take care of yourself. And don't, you know, it almost sounds like you never want to be in a position where you're trading your vitality, your life for your company or, you know, the, the product or however you want to phrase that. The way I think about it is twofold, right? If your eventual goal is to have the largest possible business then right you want to be kind of the monopoly in your space you know nothing short of google facebook amazon level success will make you happy then classic venture model is right for you and my sense is that 99 out of 100 entrepreneurs who raise venture don't want that and so you have to kind of fake it you have to sell that to your vcs and then once you get into your business you can now adopt however much degree of sort of the chill work philosophy as you would like. And you can instead say, we are going to be MailChimp, right? Which just sold for, I don't know how many tens of billions of dollars or whatever yeah, it did, is, right? They did pretty but good, like, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they did great, right? And, and tons of businesses are like this, you know, Atlassian and SurveyMonkey, I think, which just changed their name. And, you know, a bunch of other companies, right? Where it's, it's, it's much more of a, chill work philosophy and an approach and it's slow growth over a long period of time that compounds because you've built up a a product and a team and a in a market that that works well as opposed to hey how are we going to grow whatever you know 200% year over year because we have to raise our next round in order to survive hmm, what if you didn't have to raise a next round to survive I just urge folks to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, I think that you're totally right. Of like, what is your goal? You're totally right. If you want to create a Google-sized company, there's really not there's not a lot of great ways to get there without raising tons of cash. But if your goal is to like, I just want to have enough money. Like, I want to want to have enough money. You know, not a ton of money, not like a, you know an insane amount of money, but like, yeah, I just want to be you know very comfortable and live a great life. Well, you're the available options that you have in front of you of like how you actually want to get there just got like a lot wider. And I think you're right that everybody is taking the the Google approach when it's like, well, I have a good life. There's like, there's a lot of, a lot of like very cool and interesting ways to get to like having a good life. I'm just going to share this one piece because I think, I don't think people believe it until they really hear it. When I left Moz, Brian, the company was doing about $50 million a year in revenue. It was profitable. It was at a very slow growth rate. I think it was like 5% growth or something like that year over year, right? So it, the growth had really plateaued. This was you know, maybe four years after I stepped down as CEO. And I was making $200,000 a year, which look, is a very nice salary. And I can tell you very honestly that almost all of my friends who worked in consulting businesses, right? Who had started like a small agency or, you know, I'm a solo SEO consultant. They were out earning me and had been for a good while. And it was pretty odd, you know, to have those conversations and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You founded Moz. It's making like $50 million a year. 
you built this thing, you own 20% of the company, and you're telling me that my three-person agency is making me more money than you every year? What? <laughs> you're like, yep. I'm like, yep, sure is. Good on you. We're talking about so, this. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I think there, there was probably... I don't know, 25 of Moz's 200 employees who were making more than I was, right? There was, uh, you know, almost every friend I had who worked at Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple, they all out-earned me. <laughs> so, hmm, hey, I'm just saying, you might think that getting to tens of millions of dollars of revenue and like, you know, a, a company that tons of people know and a brand name and all that, that that is going to be more financially successful. Bad news, friends. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if we're just making all assumptions and then just taking the most popular story that's out there and so, trying to like apply that to what we're doing. That is for sure true. But Travis got that mansion, so probably <laughs> you're probably going to buy a mansion too. You know? Yeah, he did, he did get that mansion. Uh, that's a good point. Oh, but think, think of the energy bill. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that guy is probably personally personally responsible for like an actual percent of climate change. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fair. It's deeply problematic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need another we need another hour to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to I want to let you let you go, Rand. This has been awesome. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share what you're doing and some of the you know your your thinking and and kind of you know how your your path has evolved. But I also appreciate you sort of zooming out. I think it's really interesting and and useful to even consider things. You know, well, where did VCs come from? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you know, just and sharing personally some of your your stories of like it's not about it's working more calmly and and being more focused and being more kind to yourself is not like a a trade-off of like, well, yeah, you know, you'll be poor, but you can also do it. Like you can kind of have it. Well, I don't know if this is too strong an assertion, but you can kind of have it all. Um, you just need to be really intentional and you need to be really, really thoughtful. And I'm glad you're sharing your story because it's, you know, there's a lot of different archetypes that people could base what they're doing off of. And I think that popping off to stopping working when you're done working and playing video games when you want to play video games and going for a walk when you want to go for a walk. Like that's a, that's a pretty powerful, you know, a pretty powerful, you know, Trinity. I'm telling you, man, the, what, what do the Italians call it? La vita bella, right? The sort of like Zen-like appreciation of your life and the world around you and the people that you have in it. I'd take that. Just one last thing, Brian, one last thing. This is Hard to share. So, you know, when Moz sold, Geraldine and I obviously made a good amount of money, right? We, we owned a lot of the, my wife and I, we owned a lot of the company. And we, you know, we previously, like my best friend in the world, she, she was the officiant at our wedding, was, was Moz's CEO, Sarah, Sarah Bird. She was like, you know, very close to us in our lives. And, and years ago, whatever it was, 2016 or something, you know, there, our relationship like really came to a breaking point. We lost a ton of trust. We had all these terrible things happen between us and haven't, really communicated since, you know, even though technically she was my boss for a couple more years at Moss. And Geraldine and I sat down after, you know, this giant deposit came into our bank account. And we were like, if we could take it all back, if we could go back in time and keep our friendship with Sarah and, you know, sort of like all the, you know, none, none of these terrible things that, that happened as kind of an outcome had happened. Would we trade this giant amount of money for that? And there is no fucking question in my mind. In a heartbeat, in a heartbeat, I would trade that money. I would give it back in exchange for that, that amazing person. I don't know what happened to her, but yeah, absolutely. Even if it meant that Moz failed and, and you know, brought no money to its investors and owners, I would do it. I would totally do it. Because <laughs> look, money is a great thing, but it's not the only thing. Sure. Yeah, that's the that was the true cost. And when you added up your your hours and the stress and the you know the the it sounds like the very deep personal friendships, you know. Yeah. Just so much so much loss, so much heartache and and broken relationships and angry people and not <laughs> how's that worth it? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. This is not the side 
of the story that's told going back no. to what we said at the very beginning. But I can tell you from my position, you know, I haven't, haven't been in the game quite as long, but I've heard other stories. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, think about all these, you know, co-founders. We hear about the, the co-founder breakup and the co-founder fights. You know, that's because that's kind of tabloidy, like we're talking about. But these were two people that were either best friends or partners or, you know, they, these two people had to have the faith and the trust, you know, and a relationship that is, you know, beyond basically any, you know, besides being in a committed relationship for an extended period of time, it's, I mean, that's actually what it is. And we, we sort of see the story of the breakup. So there is like, there is a real painful collateral cost, uh, collateral damage for a lot of these. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brian, absolute pleasure to talk with you as always. And anything I can ever do for you, for Bear Metrics, for your community. I love the people that you're helping, my friend. And I hope we get to do this again in a couple of years and we can talk about hopefully, you know, even more things that we both learned. Yeah, absolutely. Rand, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care. That was our conversation with Rand Fishkin, co-founder and CEO of SparkToro. If you want to take your audience research to the next level, you know where to go. SparkToro.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed the episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. If you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.